And welcome back to yet another super wonderful episode of Digging Up the Past. I am your fearless host, Petros Katupis. Well, maybe not as fearless as our hero, Odysseus. Now, some of our listeners may have felt that the last episode was a bit incomplete, and with good reason. Again, it was primarily focused on the telegony, which encompasses books one through four of uh, the Odyssey. Today, though, we will spend some time talking about the portion referred to as the Wanderings, which, if you recall from our last episode, covers uh, books 5 through 12 of the Odyssey. This section is one of the most interesting ones, as it includes a lot of the poem's most mythological elements. We are talking about witches, the Cyclops, interaction with the gods, and more. In the Wanderings, we find our hero Odysseus, a captive of the nymph, Calypso, a minor deity, for seven years. She is deeply in love with him, but Odysseus continues to mourn for his home, Ithaca, and his wife Penelope, who at the time is trying to ward off those uh, greedy suitors attempting to gain her hand in marriage and ascend the throne in his place. Sent by the Greek god of the god Zeus, the messenger Hermes orders Calypso to let Odysseus go. So Odysseus builds a raft, and off he goes. Oh, I think I forgot to mention a minor detail to this story. The only reason why Odysseus is not back home yet, and that it took him ten whole years to get there, is that he insulted the gods, and more specifically, Poseidon at the very end of the Trojan War. Something about how the gods did not necessarily deserve any credit for their victory over the Trojans. Okay, it is a major detail and the main reason why Poseidon is preventing him from reaching his home. And definitely not a smart move on Odysseus' part. Anyway, upon learning that Odysseus escapes Calypso on a raft, the raft is destroyed and by some miracle, Odysseus survives and wakes up on the shores of Scyria, the island of the mythical Phaeacians. So what happens next? After a short series of events, Odysseus finds himself in the court of King Alcanus, the king of the Phaeacians. At first, he lies about his identity. Why? Well, Odysseus was quite the liar. I mean, the ancient Greeks described him as clever and cunning. The Romans despised the man whom they referred to as Ulysses because it was he who devised the plan of the Trojan horse that brought an end to the peoples that they believed to have been descendants of through Aeneas and the Trojan refugees that survived the sacking of the Trojan citadel and fled westward, which, according to Roman mythology, eventually settled on the Italian mainland. That was quite a mouthful. It is a long story and one I slightly touched on in episode four of this podcast when I sat down with author Mark Hayden to talk about the mythical founder of Rome, Romulus. Who knows, maybe in a future episode I will spend more time discussing the Aeneid, but for now, it is just the Odyssey. I keep steering off course here, but that is only because there is just so much to talk about, and I feel compelled or obligated to squeeze in as much detail as I can. Also, my ADHD does not help either. So, in the court of King Alcanus, King of the Phaeacians. Now, who was King Alcanus, and where was his kingdom? Well, we don't really know. 
it is one of the most mysterious and elusive topics of ancient Greek literature. Not much is known of this foreign monarch, or at least not much has survived the test of time. Details of the ruler and his kingdom survive only in the journeys of both Odysseus and Jason in the Argonautica. In every source, it is said Alcanus was not a native to Greece, but instead a ruler of the peoples known as the Phaeacians living in the outskirts of what then was uh, the known world. He was a wise and just leader, favored by both gods and man. We are first formally introduced to him in the Odyssey. Even though King Alcanus plays an important role in the Argonautica, and while the 3rd century BCE Apollonius Rhodius' Argonautica post-dates Homer by at least half a millennium, Homer and his audience were well aware of the exploits of Jason in the Argonautic myth. This becomes clear in the episode where Circe gives Odysseus instructions on how to continue his voyage home, and when she begins to speak of the Planctae, or the Wandering Rocks. She states the following in the Odyssey, Book 12, verses 69 through 72. One seafaring ship alone has passed by those that Argo famed of all on her voyage from Aetes, and even her, the wave, would speedily have dashed there against the great crags had not Hera sent her through because Jason was dear to her. Aside from the Planktai, other themes from the Odyssey can be found in the Argonautica, which include the Sirens. It should also be noted that Circe, who we learn about in this section of the Odyssey, after Odysseus reveals his true identity and tells his real story, was the sister of King Aetes of Colchis. Circe was the witch that turned half of Odysseus's men into animals until, with the help of the gods, Odysseus bested the witch and was able to get her to lift the spell. It is interesting, though, there seems to be two separate traditions on the location of Circe. Homer says, to the east, with the sunrise and dawn, and Hesiod says, to the west in Italy. Ancient Greeks, however, have adopted the latter because at the time this poem was in the early days of circulation, that part of the Mediterranean was the lesser known. It reminds me of the possibility of multiple traditions with another Homeric poem, the Iliad, which I shared in episode one, and the Francois vase. So again, this is a tiny bit of a repeat here. Homer writes that under the direction of the Olympians, and after 20 years away from Ithaca, his native land, Odysseus was freed by Calypso, daughter of Atlas the Titan, from her island, and he eventually washed ashore on the island of Scyria. Remember, 10 years was taken from Odysseus for the Trojan War, while the remaining 10 were from his voyage back home from the war. Alcanus was the happy ruler of Scyria with his wife Arete, his five sons, and one daughter, Nausicaa. This is what Homer tells us of Scyria and its peoples in the Odyssey Book 6, verses 2 through 12. But Athena went to the land and city of the Phaeacians. These dwelt of old in spacious Hyperia, near the Cyclopes, men overweening in pride who plundered them continually and were mightier than they. From their Nausithus, the godlike had removed them and led and settled them in Scyria, far from the bread-eating mankind. 
Alcanus was now king, made wise in counsel by the gods. Homer spends little time in describing the island itself and instead focuses on the palace of Alcanus and the way in which he receives and entertains Odysseus. While Alcanus treated his guests to the finest Scyria had to offer, Odysseus shared his woeful and often challenging tale with his Phaeacian audience. The only clues we are given of the Phaeacians and their island is that it was a mountainous island and they were masters of the sea. With a description like mountainous, it is no wonder that the location of Scyria continues to elude us all in search of it. The entire Mediterranean region is mountainous. Apollonius Rhodius fills in some of the gaps. In the Argonautica, Book 4, verses 982 to 997, we read, There is a fertile, expansive island at the entrance of the Ionian Strait in the Ceronian Sea, under which is said to lie the sickle of the Phaeacians, has been called by the name Trepane. The Argo came, aided by the winds from the Thrinacian Sea. Alcanus and his people gladly welcomed the travelers. The Ceronian Sea is located just north of the Ionian Strait, opening up to the island of Kirkara, or Corfu. Based on the description provided by Apollonius, Drapane would be associated with Kirkara. We also read in Book 4, verses 1223 to 1230. On the seventh day, they left Drapane. Already they had left behind the gulf named for the Ambracians. Already with sails spread wide, they had passed the land of the Curetes and the line of narrow islands along with the Echinades themselves. His identification of Kirkara is further confirmed by the voyage following Jason's departure of the island. The Ambracian Gulf was situated along the Ionian Sea. It is south of Kirkara and north of the island of Lefkada and on the Greek mainland. The Curetes were a legendary people living along and on the islands of Acarnania, also situated along the western coast of the Greek mainland in the Ionian Sea. In his library, Book 1, verse 9, Apollodorus writes, After skirting the island of Thrinacia, which held the cattle of the sun, they came to the island of the Phaeacians, Corcora, which was ruled by Alcanus. The earliest reference to Kirkara dates back to the 13th century BCE. The Mycenaean Linear B inscription refers to Corcurayo, or man from Kirkira. It is difficult to say who inhabited the island during the Late Bronze Age and very early Iron Age, but we do know that by the 8th century BCE, Corinthians and Eretrians from Euboea had migrated to the region and settled it. So maybe the home of these legendary Phaeacians was Kirkara, but other theories exist. For instance, in both narratives, the land of the Phaeacians was reached after passing the island of Thrinacia in the west. What was Thrinacia? Scholars have long debated this, but most tend to agree with the ancient sources in identifying it as the island of Sicily. We first read of Thrinacia in Book 12 of the Odyssey. It is an island home to the cattle of Helios, the Greek god of the sun. It is strongly believed that part of the name, the three part, resembles the Greek word of tria, or three, the number three, and alludes to the three corners of the island. 
here is where it gets interesting. There actually exists a Drapani today, more appropriately called Trapani. It rests on the western coast of the island of Sicily. Its name would have likely been a common one, translating to sickle. And based on the curved shape of the city's harbor, the island was originally founded by the Elemians during the classical period, that is, from the 5th to 4th centuries BCE. I don't know. Maybe there is a clue in the etymology of the name Phaeacian. It is generally accepted that the name derives from the Greek phaos or gray. While the color may somehow describe the Phaeacian culture, we are still left speculating its true symbolic purpose. Was it their skin color, eye color, the landscape of their island, or something entirely different? Either way, in every description, we are left to believe that nothing about them was Greek. Going back to the possibility of Kirkura being their homeland, can we without a shred of doubt place the Phaeacians on the Greek islands of Kirkura? Unfortunately, the answer is a firm no. At least not until additional archaeological or literary evidence proves otherwise. We have yet to understand the role of Kirkura in the world of the Mycenaean Greeks. Were they non-Greek speaking outsiders? Were they experts of the sea? Despite what has been maintained through classical tradition, such conclusions do raise its fair share of doubts. For instance, Kirkura is to the north of Ithaca in the same Ionian Sea. When Alcanus received Odysseus into his palace, they admit to not knowing Odysseus the man, but instead knew of Odysseus the hero of the Trojan War, as evidenced by the bardic tales of Demodocus. How could two influential kings, that is, Alcanus and Odysseus, who shared dominion in the same sea, not personally know the other? Did the Phaeacians exist beyond Greece and further west, closer to the Italian mainland? Does the Sicilian Trapani in any way relate to the Trapani of the Phaeacians? Probably not. As I highlighted earlier, the name itself would have been representative of the landscape. It also does not help when the Phaeacians are placed on Trapani as opposed to Scyria many centuries after Homer. The fact that two different names are used in two separate narratives does throw us for a loop. Have we been completely misled by Homer? Personally, I would love to believe that the Phaeacians of Homer's tale represent the descendants of a forgotten Bronze Age, maybe Elemian or Minoan or another population. So let us pretend for a few minutes here that maybe this is the case. For example, According to classical tradition, the Elemians occupied Western Sicily during the Late Bronze Age. Outside of mythology, not much is known about these peoples, including their identity and culture. By the Iron Age, they are almost indistinguishable from their Sakani neighbors in the archaeological record. They also spoke a unique and still undeciphered language likely related to the Italic family of languages. There would have been knowledge of Sicily since at least Mycenaean times, as was evident by the Mycenaean and Cypriot wares, including pottery, discovered on the island. The voyage along its eastern coast would have been necessary for boats intending to enter the Tyrrhenian Sea via the Straits of Messina. Besides, 
Greek mythology tells of events and stories that potentially preserve faint or vague oral traditions of the islands, such as the Daedalus story, and even the exploits of Heracles in the Western Mediterranean. In the Odyssey, we also read references to Sicani. However, these references are limited to books 20 and 24, the latter of which is believed to have been added by a slightly later poet. All but one implies that Sicily was an island where slaves were either bought or kept. I touch on the topic of slavery in the Mycenaean economy in an earlier episode. I believe it was episode one, but I, I could be wrong. If you recall, Homer provides us with a backstory to the Phaeacians. They escape the man-eating Cyclopes to eventually find their new home in Scyria. From the hymn of Callimachus to the plays of Euripides, historical records as early as the late 4th century BCE have linked the Cyclopes with volcanoes. They were the assistants of the smith god Hephaestus at his forge under Mount Etna on the island of Sicily or in the nearby Aeolian islands. This theme is repeated in Virgil's Aeneid. The name Cyclops, in singular form, translates to round-eyed or circle-eyed. Could this be a representation of the opening of a volcano or something else entirely different? I know we are venturing into the realm of unsubstantiated theories and speculation. I want to emphasize that fact. Coming back to the Cyclopes, well, maybe not. We will return to the Cyclopes. Let me share a side story first. This story takes place in the Eastern Mediterranean. And thanks to Hollywood, with at least two movie adaptations, many of us should be familiar with it. Ancient and Hellenistic tradition link Jaffa, or Eopia, modern-day Tel Aviv, Israel, to the name Cassiopeia, the mother of Andromeda, who is saved by Perseus from the sea monster Cetus. Settlement in Jaffa dates as far back as the Near Eastern Bronze Age, circa 3300 to 1200 BCE, and is firmly situated along the Levantine coast. It served as a port city since antiquity and was written about in ancient texts as early as the 15th century, some of which are preserved in the 14th century BCE Amarna letters as Yapu in, for example, EA365. The city remained under Egyptian control until approximately 800 BCE. Near the harbor of the city, there exists an outcrop of rocks which have been associated with the place where Andromeda was chained. In his description of Greece, Book 4, Lines 35-9, Pausanias writes, Red water, in color like blood, is found in the land of the Hebrews near the city of Joppa. The water is close to the sea, and the account which the natives give of the spring is that Perseus, after destroying the sea monster to which the daughter of Cepheus was exposed, washed off the blood in the spring. In his geography, Book 1, Lines 235, Strabo writes, Some again would transport Ethiopia into our Phoenicia and make Joppa the scene of adventures of Andromeda. And this is not from any ignorance of the topography of those places, but by a kind of mythic fiction, similar to those of Hesiod and other writers censored by Apollodorus, who however couples Homer with them, without, as it appears, any cause. And... In his The War of the Jews, Book 3, Lines 9-3, Josephus writes, 
Now Joppa is not naturally a haven, for it ends in a rough shore, where all the rest of it is straight, but the two ends bend towards each other, where there are deep precipices and great stones that jut out into the sea, and where the chains wherewith Andromeda was bound have left their footsteps, which attest the antiquity of that fable. The most interesting part of Jaffa is not its association to the Perseus sea monster, but to other sea monsters. Mentioned in the Hebrew Bible and in the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah embarked from Joppa, that is Jaffa, for Tarshish. In the first few verses of the book of Jonah, we read, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Conjured up by God, a bad storm resulted in the ship and its crew being cast into the sea, and a giant sea monster swallowed up Jonah. Chapter 2 continues, And the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God, out of the fish's belly. Some key things to know. Dagadol, the Hebrew term used to describe the sea creature, translates to a great fish. The later compiled Greek Septuagint would translate this into the equivalent kitos megas. This is a very important clue as the ancient Greek word for fish or kitos is used here. This is the equivalent of the Latin cetus. The name of the constellation cetus also derives from this word. Kitos was a common word to denote a large fish, whale, or shark. Coincidentally, the word kitos is used to describe the sea monster sent by Poseidon, and it is the kitos that Perseus slays to save Andromeda, not a kraken. Yes, I know, in the movies we hear the infamous line, release the kraken, but it was a kitos. This is a lot of random stuff I'm sharing here, but why am I mentioning it? I will get to that shortly. I briefly mentioned this in an earlier episode, but because it feels like it is relevant here, I think a repeat is necessary. In 58 BCE, the Roman politician Marcus Aemilius Scaurus as Adile organized the extravagant Adilician Games. The Adiles were responsible for maintaining public buildings and regulating public festivals. In his natural history, Pliny the Elder describes Scarus as the first Roman collector. One of the largest attractions to the earlier mentioned event were the exotic animals exhibited in the circus and in an artificial lake. The greatest curiosity presented was that of a large skeleton from Joppa, claiming to be the same sea monster exposed to Andromeda. The skeleton of the monster to which Andromeda in the story was exposed to was bought by Marcus Scarus from the town of Jaffa in Judea and shown at Rome among the rest of the marvels during the Edelship. It was 40 feet long, the height of the ribs exceeding the elephants of India, and the spine being 1 foot 6 inches thick. Based on Pliny's description, many have interpreted the skeleton to that belonging to a whale, more specifically a sperm whale. Sperm whales were not an uncommon observation along the Levantine coast and especially in Jaffa. 
This specific sperm whale, however, may have been the remains of a sick or dying whale that beached itself. It is the male of the species which would have been documented in displaying acts of aggression towards other whales and sometimes humans. In recent centuries, mostly from the 19th century, there have been recorded cases of sperm whales attacking large, sometimes whaling ships. The hypothesis has always been that these large ships appeared as a competitive whale to the sperm whale. In some cases, these whaling ships were at the time hunting one or more smaller female pods. It is understandable that a nearby whale would assume that the threat may be another male. While it is unclear as to how many sperm whales occupied the Mediterranean in ancient times, today it is estimated that the total number of sperm whales inhabiting the Mediterranean is more likely reduced to the hundreds. Switching back to the Phaeacians and their escape from the Cyclopes, as was the case with the Ketos of the Perseus story, it seems like a logical assumption that the Greeks prior to Homer would have stumbled on assorted skeletons or fossils of unexplained creatures. Such creatures would require interpretation, and in doing so, a new specimen or species made an entry into their world steeped in mythology. For instance, it was, and still isn't, uncommon to find remnants or skeletal remains of prehistoric dwarf elephants on many of the islands of the Mediterranean. Archaeologists have discovered remains on Samos, Crete, Cyprus, Malta, the Cyclades, the Dodecanese Islands, Sardinia, and even Sicily. Some were even found in caves along the coasts of the islands. The migration of the species and related subspecies would have occurred during the Pleistocene while the sea levels were lower and prior to the filling of the Mediterranean at the end of the last ice age. We are talking about two and a half million years ago to as late as 11 or 12,000 years ago. To a curious eye, the skeleton of a pygmy elephant would have appeared monstrous and large, and the main cavity at the center of its skull likely resembled that of a single eye, similar to that of the cyclopes. Think about it. Dwarf elephant skeletons found inside the coastal caves of these islands. Ancient Greeks would have imagined primitive giants that used rocks and clubs as weapons in the great piles of bones found on the cave floors. Well, they have to be the remains of sailors that were shipwrecked. Now all of a sudden, these monstrous one-eyed giants are cannibals. Descriptions like this would have circulated among the sailors dating to as far back as the Mycenaean times of the late Bronze Age. Would it have been enough to create stories of the Phaeacians escaping the Cyclopes from a nearby Sicilian location or one of the Aeolian islands? Could the gray in their name emphasize the fact that they were a different race or just represent the volcanic ash of nearby volcanoes to which the Cyclopes inhabited in later traditions as servants to the blacksmith god? Again, we don't have the answers, and until future literary or archaeological discoveries yield more clues, we cannot proceed any further. Here's the thing. By the time of Homer, the west of Greece, and specifically the areas of Italy, was still mostly unknown. So it would not be unreasonable to assume that most of the events of the wanderings portion of the Odyssey took place around here and even further west. It was a case of here be dragons. And we have come to an end with another great episode. 
If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroskatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis signing off.